Good afternoon, Abbasai. Welcome to Chazar Shir for Fall 2023, Contemporary Halacha. We will cover a number of shirim today, and uh, we'll try to go relatively quick. We're going to start with the shir for Rav Shechter on Dina de Machus Adina. First of all, what's the source for Dina de Machus Adina? So there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin has machlokas of what the Melech is supposed to uh, do and what his rights are. And the Shulchan Aruch follows Shmuel that a Melech has the right to levy taxes. And uh, presumably, if that's correct, Shmuel, uh, who is based on that which uh, Parshas HaMelech is, uh, applies to Klaisel in Eretz Yisrael, and we pass him like that Shmuel who says that whatever is written in Parshas HaMelech is what HaMelech is permitted to do, that would end up that in Eretz Yisrael there would be a, 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 an opportunity for the government to levy taxes. Although there is the famous Ran in the Dorim that people like to bandy about, that since every Yid has a Chelek in Eretz Yisrael, and the whole right of a king or a government to levy taxes only because the king has the right to rent out the land in which he, which he owns to people to live there. And if you don't pay your rent through taxes, he could throw you out. So the Ran in the Dorim says that therefore in Eretz Yisrael, where you and I all have the right to live there, so no one, has, no one could charge us tax or no one could throw us out, and therefore, the government in Eretz Yisrael, the king in Eretz Yisrael, should not have the right to levy taxes. It's a great way to get out of paying tax in Eretz Yisrael, except, as Roshata points out, it doesn't make its way into the halacha. It doesn't even make its way as a yesh omrim anywhere in the uh, Shulchan Aruch or Ramah. So it's a it's convenient shita, but we just don't paskin like it. The Rambam says that not paying taxes is considered gozel minas hamelech, um, some suggest that, that uh, it's only a, a halva, it's, it's like hafgas, milve. But if a person doesn't pay tax, there's a the money that's owed to the government, and if they don't pay tax, they're not paying that which is owed, and if you have hafgas, milve, to a guy, that's, uh, that might not be uh, obligated to pay that. But we don't pass, and that's the Mishnah Melech suggestion, and uh, we don't pass like that Mishnah Melech, uh, who says that paying tax is just a hafgas, milve. So the Rav Shechter suggests, and uh, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a Chiddush, I don't think most people assume this way, but it's very strong, it's a very, 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 very strong Svarah, that the reason why we have to pay taxes is because of, there's a Halach and Hilchus Shutfin as follows. If we are a Shutfus, even if you disagree with something, but you're the minority, let's say there are four Shutfin, one of them disagrees, the other four, the other three or four say we should do such and such, then they could be Kofa, the majority could be Kofa, the mute. And therefore, if let's say I live in New York State and I don't want to send my kids to public school and I don't want to pay for other people to go to public school, I hate, I think they teach terrible things um, in uh, New York State. But since I'm part of a shutzvah in New York State of all the other people in New York State, therefore the rove could be kofed me to pay my share of taxes for that which I don't want to pay for the, New- for the public school taxes. And similarly, Roshachta suggests that's how we are partners. We are Shutfin in New York City. We are Shutfin also in New York State. We are also Shutfin in the United States of America. And therefore, we have three levels of Shutfin, which obligate us in three levels of taxes. Accordingly, that would come out that if a person would cheat on his taxes, they're not just stealing from Goyim, because your Shutfin are Yisraelim also. You're not allowed to steal from Goyim. That's also clear, of course. But it would even be stealing from Yisraelim, because Yisraelim are your Shutfin, and uh, you would be stealing from them as well. So that's your Shechter's pr- uh, perspective about taxes. Let's talk specifically, now the next point, let's talk specifically about what are the areas in which Dina de Malchusa plays a role. Point number one is essential to realize that Dina de Malchusa Dina applies... Dina de Malchusa Dina applies 
only between a Yisrael and a Goy. If there are two Jews, there's no Dina de Machlus Adina because you're bound by Chosher Mishpat. But between Yisrael and a Goy, then Dina de Machlus Adina will apply. Number one, Dina de Machlus Adina applies to uh, enable the government to levy taxes. Number two, to define what is Kesef. Number three, Lehaanish, to give on Shim. That's the, another parameter of Dina de Machlus Adina. And fourthly, to have a legal system that the government is allowed to introduce. Uh, and now let's talk about some of those parameters. Um, let's talk about defining money. So if Din Machusa allows a government to define m- money, that means that wherever there's a din called kesef, for example, Pidyon Meisr Sheni, for example, in, in Ribis, defining Peyre and Teva, uh, for Olas Ria and other places where you have to have a din of kesef mamish, then only money that is minted by a legitimate government will be able to create what we call kesef. And therefore, if, for example, you're in the Neturit Karta and you don't hold that the government of Eretz Yisrael has any right to exist, so therefore you can't be podi your Maiser Sheni on Shkalim, which all the Poskim and all the Gdolim for the past uh, 75 years do and have uh, done. So that would be a nafkamina of the ability of the, of the government, of the Dina de Machus Adina, to create uh, that which we call kesef. Uh, let's go to the next point. When do we apply Dina Demachus Adina? I mentioned that it's only when there's a din between myself and a guy. Between two Jews, then we have Chosher Mishpat. Now, for that reason, Dina Demachus Adina will never apply to Yerusha. We will never apply the, the, the probate laws or the laws of uh, inheritance laws of wherever city, country you live in, because by definition, if it's Yerusha, it's between two Jews, and therefore Dina Demachus Adina will not apply. Similarly, Dina de Machus only applies by Mominus and not by Isser. So if the Dina de Machus says that you have to work on Shabbos, so obviously no one could do that. Um, next point. Rav said something very important. Even though we say that Dina de Machus does not apply between two Jews, Rav suggests a possibility where Dina de Machus would apply to, between two Jews and we would be bound by the Dina de Machus and not by what Chosher Mishpat says. What case is that? That's in a case where the Dina de Machus was established, the Tikkun Hamadina. So, for example, let's say the government wants there to be minimum wage, the government wants there to be uh, bankruptcy law, the government wants there to be tenant landlord laws. So, if you're Jewish, you say, oh, we, we have to follow Chosher Mishpat. The answer is no, that's not correct. Since the government introduced these laws, the Tikkun Hamadina, therefore, Dina de Machus would apply. Uh, even between two from Jews, because uh, they, these specific areas of law are Latikon Hamedina. Another scenario where even though uh, there would be Dina de Machus Adina even between two Jews is let's say uh, a person has clients or customers who are both Jewish and not Jewish. You can't say, oh, the Jews are going to have, you know, a, a, you know, a Chosh Mishpatika warranty, and all the Goyim in my castle will have to follow the New York State rules about warranties and about returns. No, since you have anyone who comes into my office or comes into my uh, store knows that there's all the clients or all the customers are governed by whatever rules govern returns and warranties. Uh, and therefore, they come in, mitchil is like an umduna demuchach, as though there was a tznai that... The Jews are coming in as though there's a tie that they're going to follow whatever everybody else, all the other customers, the Gentile customers, are following as far as what would be the Dino de Machus Adina. So in other words, if the Umdana is clearly um, 
assume some, uh, there is a clear assumed umdana between the two Jews that we're going to follow Dino de Machusadina, then Dino de Machusadina would possibly, yes, apply. That's the first half of the shir. The second half of the shir was about not Dino de Machusadina, but about Mesira. Mesira means you're not allowed to hand over a Jew to the Geisha tax collector or the Geisha authorities, but there are very specific scenarios where that's Aser. For example, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Gemara Bar-Metziah tells a story of Elizabeth and Shimon, Shimon Bar-Yachai's son, the one who was with him in the, in the cave, who became a tax collector for the Romans. And when Elio Navi met him, and by the way, one of the things that they would do is, uh, not just tax collector, he would find Jewish criminals and turn them over to the Romans, and the Romans would sometimes kill those Jewish criminals. When Elio Navi bumped into him, he said, he never said that, Rebelazar, you're doing something usser. He just said that what you're doing is not appropriate for a good Jewish boy. From there, the Rishonim learn out that since these people were criminals, it is permitted to turn them over to the, uh, the Roman authorities, even if they would be killed. It's not an Isra of Mesira, but this halacha of this, when we're saying this is permitted, and therefore I'm not going to call it Mesira, because Mesira is always usser. We're saying that this isn't Mesira. To give a criminal over to the government is not considered Mesir. That's if, that is if, that the violation was something that is halakhically prohibited also. So for example, if somebody did something that was, uh, you know, they violated the laws of environmental protection, they disposed of, by, you know, biological waste inappropriately, and therefore they're uh, taken, you know, therefore there's a criminal thing against them. Since there's no violation in halakha that says you have to dispose of biological waste in a very specific area, a very specific way, that would not have a heter to turn such a person in to the government. Now, the halakha is, we know makim basin is makim v'on that similarly a government is allowed to punish even more than seems appropriate in my eyes, or even than what halakha would allow, and still it's permitted to turn in somebody to the government, as we saw from the story from Elazar, who would turn in Jewish criminals, thieves, and they would potentially be killed by the Romans. That's still not considered a, a Mesira. Mesira would be when a person, there's something on the books, let's say a person is supposed to get X punishment, but if I turn them over to the government, they're going to end up even more than what the government says he's supposed to get, meaning the government says you go to jail for three years. But if I turn around, he's going to go to jail in three year, for three years, and he's also going to get beaten up as a Jew in jail, or he's going to get raped by another man in jail. That the government didn't say, and that would be there in such a scenario, it would be answer for me to turn the Jew in. Um, similarly, Rav Shechter says that the Grah, sees in the Grah, that if a person would be asked to testify about a certain case, and he, I'm not going to testify against another Jew, I actually had this Shiloh last week. Somebody came and was asked to testify about a, in a, case, in a case with a Jew. Uh, if he says, I'm not going to testify because halacha doesn't permit me, and that would cause a chil Hashem, the Grah says that in a makam of chil Hashem, there might also be a permission to uh, be involved in handing over something to a guy. Um, when do we allow Mesir? I mean, when do we allow giving over a, somebody to the Gaisha authorities, even if they were to be per, um, punished more severely than, than they should be? Like, he'll go to jail and he will get beaten up for being a Jew in jail. That is, even that is what the Shulchanan says in uh, Shin Peches. If somebody is Meitzer Es Harabim, he causes uh, pain to the community, for example, a pedophile, an abuse, uh, someone who's an abuser, a con artist, um, even if a Ponzi scheme person. Another person, the Shulchan says, a most maka es chavero. That would also be uh, permitted 
those would be Messiah. I will tell you, Halacha Lamaisa, that you should just know Rav Shechter is more lenient than, I believe, Rav Moshe and many other poskim, especially the Hasidish poskim. So if this Shalot does come your way, you should be aware that what I present to you, Rav Shechter is, has many situations that he allows people to uh, be reported. Many other poskim, including Rav Moshe, might not be as quick to do so. So make sure you ask a Shaila from a person with broad shoulders if it comes your way. Next shear, let's continue with Rishachter and talk about Yerusha for wills and estates. So we mentioned a minute ago that there's no such thing as following the laws of uh, inheritance because it's by definition an issue between two, par- two Jewish parties. And therefore, Dina de Machlis and Dina will not apply. That's one reason why we don't follow inheritance law. Another reason is that the Ramam made up a drasha which is not in Shas, he made it up, and says that the Pasuk that talks about Yerusha says the words chukas mishpat. The word chok is as if to say it's not just uh, dine mominus, it's also a chok, it's also dine iser, and therefore, since it's dine iser, it will also not be subject to, um, you know, dine de machus dine, because like I said, you can't do dine dine to permit going to, shoot, you know, uh, doing an abortion because that's what the law allows, or breaking Shabbos, that's beyond what the dine machus dine is only mominus. And Chukas Mishpat shows that inheritance is also um, Isser. We know the halacha of Yerusha is very clear. Torah is very, very, very clear. Boys get, girls don't. Husbands get from wives, wives don't get from husbands. Um, so that basically means, and tells you exactly how much. Boys get, you know, Bechor gets Pishnaim, everybody else gets one chilek. Um the Torah does allow some <coughs> version of a tzava, of a, of a will, and that is, uh, Rabbi Yochum ben Brokes says that you're allowed to choose a yoresh min hayoresh, if you have a few kids and you want one of the boys to get more than his share, that you could choose. It doesn't mean you have to give it to your daughter nor to your wife, because they don't get anything. But some who is anyway going to get, you're allowed to adjust the percentages of that which they will get if you phrase it in a positive way. You could say, Yankee will get, you know, 52% of my Yerusha. I can't say, I don't like, you know, Shmuli because, you know, uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't bring me coffee, he didn't make coffee the way I like it, so I don't want Shmuli to get as much as Yankee. That you can't do. You can say Yankee should get more in a positive way, if anyway, they are both going to be Yarshim anyway. What about, so how will I be able to get my daughters or other people that I want to give to? So, we say, uh, and if there's a shchiv so that will, that will uh, make it, make it, the uh, shchiv will be able to be, make the kinyanim. But that's not so easy to work on because not everybody knows that they're going to be a shchiv who will be able to direct their distributions when they're, before they're going to die. What about how will Bari be able to uh, set a Yerusha? So, here, we have a uh, possibility that if the father says something, we know that there's kibbutz avaim, even l'achar misa. So, if the father said, I want so-and-so to be get, or I want my wife to get, or I want my daughters to get, so there's kibbutz avaim. The problem is, if the kid doesn't want to do his kibbutz avaim, there's no way to force him uh, to do that kibbutz avaim. And more so, there, if kibbutz avaim uh, is only Michel Av, not Michel Ben, so who's holding the kid liable to use his own money that he yarshin to do what his father wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, 
No, the Torah says when a person dies, this is how you divide it. The father says, I would like a shprinzi to uh, get $50,000. That's not against the Torah. The father's not, not, the father's not saying it, it, it has to. We know that the wish of the father is that shprinzi should be taken care of. And the kid wants it the same way your father says, I want a tea, I want shprinzi to have $50,000. So once he's dead, you still have a mitzvah to do what your father wanted. Yeah. So what was the term that would allow the fathers to buy things up? To be morish uh, to a, to a ben ben ha yorish ben ha yorshim. Based on the passage beyond hanachiloes banav, the Torah said beyond hanachiloes banav, there is a possibility of being manchil. So that has to mean that there is some human choice in the tzavah process. Um, let's now talk about. The din of Pishnayim. How do you calculate Pishnayim? The way you calculate Pishnayim is the easiest number is you have $100 that you're being morished to your children, and you have three kids. So Pishnayim means you take your three portions and you add a fourth portion. So now divide $100 into four portions. The Bechor will get $50, and the next two children will get $25 each for a total of $100. If you have nine children and you have $100, so then you divide your, your estate not into nine portions, but into ten portions, and now the Bechor will get two of those ten portions, and the other eight remaining children will get one of the portions. So for a total of, again, $100. That's how Pishnayim works. Now, we know that there's a halacha Pishnayim, that it's only the muhsak, not the roi, level la'achamisa. So what happens if you have a, a loan that the father lent, and it's an outstanding loan at the point of death? He never collected it. So that's a machlokes tanoim. And the Gemara assumes that that's considered roi lavo, and it's not considered mufzak, and therefore there will not be pishnayim. So if a father lent somebody $100,000, at some point in his lifetime, and never collected it. So the Bechor will not get pishnayim on that $100,000, he'll only get pishnayim on whatever the father had in his assets, not that which was extended outside. What about a savings account, which most people don't just have money in the, under their mattresses nowadays. Uh, most people have their money in a savings account. How do we define a savings account? In other words, when I, usually, if you ask an economist, he'll tell you that, but when you deposit money in a savings account, what you're doing is you are lending the bank money. That means it's a halva. That means all money is in a savings account, we could argue, is really ra'oi, and therefore there will not be a din of pishnayim for any money in a person's savings account, or in a mutual fund, or maybe even in a... Uh, Stock accounts are different. Um, but in a mutual fund, maybe also different, but certainly a savings account, that might be a, like halva to a bank. So this is a big machlokas between, on one hand, the note of Yehuda, who says that even though you're confident you'll be able to get the money back, it's still considered roi. And the other achronim, the Rechashulchan and the Igris Moshe, and uh, um, other, uh, the and the Igris Moshe, they know, even though if you're sure that you're going to be able to collect it because it's FDIC insured, for example, then it's considered muhzak and the uh, Bechar will get Pishnaim. It happens to be that Rav Shechter holds like the Nod Behuda that the, um, it is not considered, that, that, that uh, savings account is not considered muhzak, rather it's considered Roy, and the Bechar will not get Pishnaim. The halachas of Roy and muhzak, next point, the halachas of Roy and muhzak are applicable not only in the arena of a Bechor getting Pishnayim, it's also in the arena of um, Baal Yoreshes Ishto. A Baal is only Yoreshes Ishto, 
that which is muhzak in the woman's hand when she dies, but not that which she lent to somebody else. That is roi lavo misa. That her, her children will yashin from her, not her husband. So we're going to have the same question. Let's say a woman dies. Uh, she had a mar- first, kids from the first marriage, and she also has a husband from this second marriage. And she leaves over a million dollars in savings accounts. So is the husband going to get those, uh, that million dollars? If we assume that, like the Noda Yehuda, Noda Yehuda would say that it's Ra'oi, and the husband doesn't get that. If you assume, that's how Rishat would also say, if you go like Ramoshan or Hashulchan, since it's a savings account that will definitely be able to be, to be collected, it would be considered Mokhzak, and the husband would collect that million dollar account. It happens to be, here's the next point, that a, it's not proper to take away Yerusha. The Gemara says, Lo you shouldn't be ma'avir nachlet from a, even from a good, even if you have a, you know, you have a son learning in Kolo who's going to become the next God of Hadar. You have another guy who, Rahman al-Islam, became like, a, I don't know, an accountant or something, or a doctor, a lawyer, Rahman al-Islam. So, in, um, if such a thing would happen, you're still not supposed to take away the Arusha from that person. And uh, Yossi ben Yoez was happy that he had a Taka son who didn't become a Talmud Chachman. He gave all of his money to the base of Midrash. You think, wow, what a tzaddik. And Chacham were very unhappy with what he did. That's not proper. Ramosha says that if the kids are mamish, uh, a kid goes off the derech entirely, becomes fully not religious. He marries a, uh, he marries a guy. Uh, there's incredible agvats nefesh. You haven't spoken to your son in 15 years. So that would be a situation where it would be permitted to not have them in the will. But other than that, a uh, person is not supposed to scratch somebody out of their will uh, or give to one child because they think they're a bigger talmachacham or a bigger, a bigger tzaddik or any other reason. Um, let's talk about how a father can leave for his wife and his daughters. And this is the most important point, I assume, because this is what we call a halachic will. Um, the Ramah already speaks about a minhag to do what's called a shtar chatzi zachar, which is a way, which I'll describe in a minute, that enables the girls to get, if not a full portion, at least like a chatzi zachar. Shlomo Zalman commented, that even that's not appropriate nowadays. Now, as we sh- now we should give the girls, our daughters, an equal share like our sons. And that is, to do set up your estate so that your, uh, so that your daughters could get an equal amount like the sons. How do you do that? There's, the way you make a, a halachic will is with three steps. Number one, you imagine how much money you'll have when you die. More than that. Let's say, I wish I would have anything close to $10 million. I know I won't, but let's say, how have I? So I make a hischaibus right now for $10 million to who? To my daughter, who's not supposed to inherit a penny. Next, I write a second document, usually on the bottom of the page. That's one at the top of the page. The bottom of the page says that if my sons uh, follow Hilchus Yerusha, well, the halach of Yerusha is that there is a debt already for $10 million, they're going to end up with nothing. So they won't have any, they won't get a penny to the name. However, if my sons choose to be wise enough to follow my last will and testament, then I am mochel the shibud to, then I, I cancel, I'm evato my shibud to my daughter for that $10 million. So my sons have a choice. When I die, my sons have a choice. They could either follow the halachas of Yerusha and they get everything. When they get everything, what happens? All of it has to pay to the $10 million they owe their sister. Or, if they're smarter, they'll say, 
I want dad to be mevatel his $10 million, his chayvus to our sister, and therefore I'll just follow what he says in his will. What does dad say in his will? That all the children should get equally. What that accomplishes is that everything is happening. I have to add one, one kanech now. This, his chayvus, you don't want it to be his chayvus from right now, because then my daughter will just walk into my house and she'll, take, she'll, she'll just take over all my accounts. On the other hand, I can't make a hischaivas after I die, because once I'm dead, I can't be mischaiv anything. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a hischaivas from right now, but the F, what, what about a minute before death? That doesn't work because yesh breira. And since it's breira, we don't know when a minute before his death will be, so I can't be mischaiv a minute before my death. So the solution to the breira issue is I'll be mischaiv right now, but the zechus keviyah will only be a minute before death. And since it's only a prat in the... In the uh, the fact that the zechus kavi is only a small part of the uh, of the commitment of the deal, therefore breiru will not be a problem if it's only in a small prat of the deal, and therefore I will commit myself right now to the ten million dollars to my daughter. That is only collectible a second before death or a minute before death, and then when I die, they, my sons will be smart and give their sister so that, that everybody can inherit as I indicated in my last will and testament. How do you do it halacha l'maisa? You have to be mischayev. How do you how are you to, how are you mischayev yourself to your daughter ten million dollars? Very simple. You go to a Jewish lawyer. It has to be a Jewish lawyer, um, and you say you should be mikabel. You should acquire ten million dollars, or does you should be acquired ten million dollars for my daughter? How do you do that? Your daughter doesn't have to be there. She doesn't have to know about this because we use zachin l'adon shlo b'fanav. We use machlokes. We use kel shel kona kel shamak. We pass in kel shel kona. The lawyer representing the, your daughter, even though your daughter doesn't know about it, will give you his pen, his handkerchief, his yarmulke, his eyeglasses. He'll give you a kli. Like you see at a chasen tish, the same thing by a Kenyan for the ksuva. He'll give you a kli to the father on behalf of the daughter. When the father lifts up the pen or the glasses or the yarmulke, the handkerchief of the Jewish lawyer, at that moment, the hakna, Kenyan chalipin happened, and the daughter now owes it owns that $10 million hischaifas, which, again, if the kids follow the, the right directions, they will be mochel, uh, they will, they will, they, the, the, the amount will be nimchal. That's the end of that year. Next year, let's switch, uh, and let's talk about Rabbi Nuberg this year, about fasting on Yom Kippur. So, as Rabbanim, you have to know that if somebody in your shul asks a shayla about Sapik Pikuach Nefesh, when time is of the essence, you are held responsible that you didn't teach them properly because you, they should know that if there's a suffix you just do and ask later. Fine. We have to know that there's a machlokas rishonim if one is machal shabbos to save a fetus we paskin that yes we are machal shabbos not only to save an adult a mother for example but a fetus an unborn fetus as well and similarly one could be on Yom Kippur to save an unborn fetus that's how we paskin. Now in the big shaila about should pregnant women fast Diane Fisher wrote that a Muberes nowadays should not fast because of Halisha's Hadaros, and I know that there are many dozens of women who had miscarriages, so therefore uh, every pregnant woman should eat Pachas Mikashir. All the posts have rejected this vehemently. I will now outline three categories of rejections uh, for that psak that Fisher argued that maybe we could say Nechlesh Hadaros. Number one, the data indicates that that's not really true. Who says that we're weaker nowadays? To the contrary, we have prenatal vitamins, we have much better nutrition, maybe we're better, maybe we're healthier nowadays. Number two, uh, and part of this, the, the data itself is questionable, is that there, there are studies 
of women causing birth, and none of the studies indicate there's any danger uh, after fasting. The Ramadan and Tishabav and Eretz Yisrael and and where women fast in Eretz Yisrael, and and we don't have indications that there's a higher percentage of danger uh, because women are fasting. Could be perhaps Rabbi uh, Fisher included in his calculations, in his numbers of people who were people who shouldn't have fast at all because of other things that we'll speak about in a few minutes. That is one category of, of, of uh, rejecting a dying fish. Another category is Maram Shik, that even if there's one in a thousand, is that called Safi Bikach Nefesh? What about one in a million? Is that called Safi Bikach Nefesh? There's a th- certain threshold that's not even considered Bikach uh, Nefesh. An ingrown toenail. Was there someone in history who died from an ingrown toenail? Let's say yes. Does that mean if you have an ingrown toenail, you should call Hatzel and drive to the hospital on Shabbos? No. Because even though there's a suffix, 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 but one in a million is not considered a pikuach nefesh. Similarly, even if there was, even if there were some people who over the past whatever, you know, dec- decades in, in, in Klausel died from giving, uh, from fasting on Kippur, that might not rise to the necessary threshold of what constitutes a minimum sex, sex, feka. Thirdly, how could... Diane Fisher say Nishtanu Hatvarim that Nishtanu Hateva, you know, with just on your own. If you're going to make such a broad, uh, you know, you're going to say that the Mishnah doesn't apply nowadays. Mefresh Shochanar doesn't apply nowadays because the Tera has changed. That you do with the Yishu, uh, Yeshiva of the, the Gedoli Hador. You don't just. That's not something that one would one would just posit on their own. That was first point. Next point. Let's now discuss specific scenarios where a pregnant woman can drink on Yom Kippur. And I'm mostly going to be talking about drinking because almost always the shail of Yom Kippur is dehydration and not really food. The only people that typically, as I understand, the only people who really need to eat are usually, um, uh, are usually people who have diabetes because they need to you know, eat good sugars and uh, maybe very, very elderly people who are very, very, very weak. But typically when you have radical... radical regular medical situations or pregnant women, the issue is really hydration. Uh, food is almost never necessary. Unless the doctor says, but that's, that's rare. Um, so I'm going to list off a few scenarios where it would be permitted to be makel to allow women to drink. We'll talk about shiurim in a minute. Number one, if there were two undiagnosed miscarriages or if there was a previous miscarriage that was, even if it's one, if it was related to dehydration or fasting. Number two, she was at risk for preterm delivery. Doctor has to assess what you know what makes the risk. Um, if she's in her seventh or eighth month and has preterm labor pains, if the doctor thinks that dehydration might uh, cause the labor pains to you know to uh, you know uh, an early, a preterm birth, um, if she's the kind of person that normally is dehydrated even on a on a weekday, you know some people get dehydrated on a, on a random Tuesday in the middle of October, uh, unrelated to any fast day middle of January. Um, in terms of vomiting, apparently, again, you have to do the, do the medical research, but Newberg pointed out if a woman vomits twice, that's not necessarily a risk of dehydration, but if she vomits three times, that is a risk. Okay, go check. Um, if on Yom Kippur, the woman demonstrates specific signs, symptoms of dehydration, um, then that would be uh, a reason that a pregnant woman or any human being should break their fast if they have uh, meaningful signs. What are signs of dehydration? Signs would be uh, that they're dizzy even when they get up. Signs would be if they have an unusually painful headache. Everyone gets a headache when you're fasting, but an unusually painful headache. 
Um, heart palpitations. If you're dizzy when you get up, so just don't get up. Stay lying down. But even if you're lying down, you're still dizzy. Obviously, no one's going to be dehydrated at you know uh, 11 o'clock at night after they uh, had a sudamav secas you know four hours ago. We're talking about dehydration is going to be the next day, a few hours into the day at least. One of the before we continue with some others, one of the very important things to for Rav to know is that it is more important for the for the, uh, the woman to know it's better for her to stay in bed in an air-conditioned room and sleep through all of Yom Kippur than to exert herself and possibly need to have one extra sip of water over the course of Yom Kippur. And that's uh, very important to explain that to uh, people who, who want to be able to break their fast. Um, and certainly for a mother with kids also, that it's better for the husband to stay home uh, all of Yom Kippur and not go to shul at all, then for his wife to might have to be able to take a sip of water because she's watching the kids and getting dehydrated. Um, fine. And now let's continue the other cases uh, that a woman would be permitted to drink if she has early bleeding. Um, if she's in the ninth month and she starts, she's ready in the ninth month. Okay, great. So she'll have a baby soon. So she'll, what happens if she'll dehydrate? The, the body sometimes will say, okay, not enough water here. Let me make the baby come out. So, okay, great. What's wrong with that? It's the ninth month. The baby's fully developed. What's wrong with that? So it could, that which is true. So uh, could she eat? So here there's a machlokas. Diane Fisher says, it's funny, Diane Fisher before is one who says all pregnant women could always eat. Here he says, but if she's in the ninth month, he's the one who's machmer and says, you can't eat because she's going to have the baby. Great. She'll have the baby. So what do you need to eat for? Um, Reb Nevensal says, no, she needs the strength to to be able to give birth. So Neuberger has sort of a pshara between these two. He says if it's, you know, again, 11 o'clock at night, she goes, you know, she's giving birth at 11 o'clock at night, she's not, you know, she doesn't need more energy now. She just ate four hours ago. If it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, on Yom know, Kippur afternoon, by then she definitely is going to need some strength. That would be a, then he would be mad to her to, to eat. Um, now what is a shear? A shear is ideally, most of the would be Malalugmav every nine minutes. How do you measure Malalugmav? You have two cheeks. That's two malalukmas. How do you measure one cheek? There's a gap in the middle that you can't measure because you hold your... Okay, the way the Mishnah Bureau says to do it is you fill your uh, mouth till your cheeks are bulging, both of them, spit it in a cup, divide in two. The product of that... Not the product, how does multiplication? What's the answer when you subtract the something? Division. The sum. The sum, even by division? I, I mean, even by subtraction? Difference. difference. Thank you. The difference is... Okay, the difference... Uh, when you when you uh, when you actually okay whatever you divide it in two and what you have left is one cheek full, um, which I found from experience is between one and two ounces depending on the person's not just how big their cheeks are but also their muscle tone how much they could stretch their uh, we've we've, ex- we've experimented um, before Yom Kippur people had to have pavos mikashir um, so ideally a malalugma let's assume you could be safe with one ounce every nine minutes. Um, if that's not enough, then do one ounce every seven minutes, or six minutes, or five minutes, or four minutes, or even two minutes. Each one of them is another shear, is another shita. So be as machmer as you can safely. If you can't, then, then do more. If a person has a choice between, uh, I might be able to make it through the fast, but if I don't make it, I'm going to have to drink a lot. Like, I won't be able to just do shear. 
So what should they do? Should they start doing shiurim, or should they start fasting with the hope that maybe they'll make it? So the post can say, if there's a possibility you might make it the whole day, then you should start fasting. And even if when you will have to drink, if it will come out that you will have to drink, you'll have to drink more than a shear, uh, a lot at once, then still start trying to fast. Um, did Rabbi Neuberger speak about nursing women? Okay, fine. So nursing women, uh, also the Shulchan Aruch says they're supposed to fast in Yom Kippur. Um, she has to be aware if she's going to be dehydrated. As we said, uh, you know, she's uh, had, a, had a situation with a nursing woman. She Mamisha, almost passed out because uh, she didn't want to. She didn't want to drink, and she almost passed out like Neila time. Um, she probably should have. Maybe she did pass out. I don't think. I don't remember. Um, so a nursing woman is, uh, loses her liquid to her nursing before she herself will keep the hydration, so she's at a higher risk. So, okay, she should try to fast. Um, they're often more nervous about being able to provide drinks, to, you know, milk to the baby than for them, their own health. Uh, so give the baby formula. Oh, my baby never had formula. Great. So a week before Yom Kippur, start practicing. Uh, let's say they practice a week before Yom Kippur. They only ask you like a minute and a half before uh, you went to shul. Those, those, those uh, phone calls that you get during Masuda Mavsekes are always the most annoying. Like, you knew that this, you knew you were pregnant a week ago, didn't you? Couldn't you call me then? Why do you have to call me, like, while I'm, while I'm you know, putting on my kittle? Okay, but don't say that. <laughs> so, let's say the baby doesn't take formula. And the baby and the mother, Taka, doesn't have milk because she's, she hasn't been drinking. It's right, 12 hours into fast. She doesn't have milk. And the baby is, you know, crying. And... There are a number of hours left till the end of the fast. You know, if there's 40 minutes left in the fast, let the baby cry for 40 minutes. No one, will, everyone will be fine. But uh, I didn't say that. But you can imagine that somebody that somebody would say that. Um, so if you have the, you know, again, the baby is not taking formula and is not getting from the mother, and the mother and the baby is crying, and there's a lot of hours left to the fast, that would be a, a situation where the mother should drink so that the baby will uh, be able to have uh, food. Women are very nervous to fast, pregnant women, especially by the first baby, uh, nursing women, because they're worried that they might lose their milk. Uh, it's very rare, but if it happens, it might happen. It might happen that they, might, they, they can't nurse, but they should uh, try to prepare ahead of time and uh, pump milk ahead of time so that they have for when it comes up. Okay, do you want Hilchas Dalad Minim or Hilchas Sukkah? I don't say that. Say that again? Oh, yeah, thank you. It's important to know that shiurim are not the rabbanans. If you speak to from doctors, it's the most common misconception among from doctors. Whenever they're like, not sure, I just drink shiurim. They think it's very, it's like an isn't the rabbanan, it's not correct. It's just a dry. If you're allowed to call Hatzal on Shabbos, you're allowed to be Machal Shabbos and drive to the hospital, then you're allowed to have a sip of water. If you're not allowed to drive to the hospital on Shabbos, then you're not allowed to have a sip of water. That's something that you certainly have to know, and you have to make sure that you're about to know that as well. Okay, do you want Dalaminim or Hilfa Sukkah? Scream. Sukkah. It is. Okay. Okay, let's uh, go through Hilchah Sukkah. Rabbi Koenig's with Sharon Hilchah Sukkah. Number one, we know that a Sukkah has to be uh, Pachos Mi Esrim Amah. 
because it has to be a diras aray. Oh, but it's a diras keva. No, it, you can make it a diras keva. No, since it's that short, it's possible to make it a diras aray. Um, it has to be roy to be aray. Although the walls only have to be roy to be aray, the schach has to be aray mamish. Um, L'chatechila, you want to make sure that the stack is not so heavy. Uh, and you want to l'chatechila see the stars. If it's uh, if the stack is very heavy and it's uh, kevadik, it's uh, you can still make a brach on it. Uh, if even if the stack is very full, what's the size of a circle? We know that there's a few in machlokes beishamai seven by seven beis hillel, meaning rosh rubo v'shulchanu beis hillel six rosh v'rubo and rebbe. This is one of the situations I believe we pass like beishamai, if I'm not mistaken. That Rosh of Ruba Vishul Chano, seven by seven, that's how we pass him. Uh, and of course, it has to be at least ten Tvachim, otherwise, it's a dear Surcha. In terms of Shnai Kehutzna Shlishis Afil Tavach, again, one of the most common mistakes that elementary school kids have is you just need two and a Tavach, right? Wrong. That din of Shnai Kehutzna Shlishis Afil Tavach is only if the Shnai Kehutzna, where the word Kehutzna means it's perpendicular to each other. There's an L. There's an L. It doesn't mean two parallel walls, it means an L. Uh, then it's Shtayin and the three tefach is not just three tefach. It means that you put the third, you put that tefach lavud to the existing standing wall. So you have an L. Then you have two point nine tefachim of lavud. Then you have one tefach of what we call omed of a stick of a pole. So sachakol, you have three point nine tefachim of wall space cover between you know almost lavud of airspace plus the tefach of the wood, and therefore you have more than, uh, you have rove of a third wall, because a wall has to be at least seven tzvachim long, so you have rove of a third wall, then you could say, and even there, you need a tzuras ha-pesach that takes you from the end of that, remember, you have 2.9, uh, you have 2.9, from the corner of the L, you have 2.9 of empty space, you have one tefach of a board, and then you have a tzuras ha-pesach from the board till the end, uh, the end of the sukkah of Etzuras HaPesach. So, it's, uh, that's when the Mishaburah says you should really always try to have a four-wall sukkah if you can. Three-wall sukkah, four-wall sukkah, you shouldn't really rely. A lot of people don't know these halachas of the limitations of Shlish Tafil Tafah. Um, let's talk about canvas sukkahs. The... No, I'm sorry. Let's talk about Dabra HaMekabal Tumah. What happens if you are somich on a Dabra HaMekabal Tumah? So this is a machlokes tanoim, uh, whether you're allowed to be somech on a davar mekabel tumah. Machlokes tanakama says kasha. Rabbi Yudah says possible. Rabbi Yudah says possible for one of two reasons: either because if uh, if you're somech on something that's that's mekabel uh, tumah, like like a kli, so someone might take the kli away, um, or or because just like the the other reason why Rabbi Yehuda might possible is because just like you can't have schach, that's mekabal tumah, so, so too you can't be mamid with davar and mekabal tumah. Why are you not allowed... Oh, so if the problem of Rabbi Yehuda's, uh, of being somich with davar and mekabal tumah is that you're not allowed to be mamid with davar and mekabal tumah, why not? What's wrong with being mamid with davar and mekabal tumah? So that's also machlokas. The Ran says, as Xavier, if you could be mamid the schach with davar and mekabal tumah, you could think that the schach itself is allowed to be davar and mekabal tumah. Rashi says, no, that if... Dabra Mekabal Tumah is holding up the schach, so it has, the schach itself has a halacha of being Mekabal Tumah. And that would be Absolda Araisa. So we had a number of machlokas that I met, not just met for you, machlokas if there's a problem in the first place. If there is a problem, is it because of uh, that it's, 
it, it could be taken away or it's Mechabal Tum, or it's being mounted with Mechabal Tum. Even if it is a Mechabal Tum, is it a problem that it's a Xero, is it a Dereis? How do we pass it like that? So, Taka, the uh, Shulchan Aruch, Paskins, that there is no Isra of being Sameh, but Dabraham Mechabal Tum at all. So the whole conversation doesn't really begin because this whole thing is Mutter entirely. Nothing to talk about. However, most Rishonim actually disagree. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch does not look like most Rishonim. Most Rishonim say, that it is usher to be somech bedava mekabel but why? So the Shulchan says that, I'm sorry, the uh, Rishonim say that it's because of the mamid bedava mekabel that's the reason why it would be usher. So, so there is a, uh, an isr, at least, uh, not like the Shulchan but many Rishonim, because of being mamid bedava mekabel the I think like the Ran. I think like the Ran. Um, it happens to be that there is another line of the Shulchan Aruch elsewhere which says that you're... The, the Shulchan Aruch says, I'm not sure if you're allowed to put schach on top of a ladder. Meaning, you have a ladder across the top of your sukkah, could I put schach on there? Well, why, why not? So, the Mangan of Ram says, because maybe it might be, Dabra, it might be being stomach with Dabra HaMakabotum. Wait a second, but the Shulchan Aruch holds you're allowed to be stomach with Dabra HaMakabotum. He holds that there's no problem whatsoever. So some suggest, Mangan Avram says that the Shulchan Aruch's psaq is really that lechatchili, even the Shulchan Aruch holds that there is no problem to be summoned with Dabram HaKabal that's only the Dievin. But lechatchili, even the Shulchan Aruch, who was lenient a minute ago, uh, says that lechatchili should avoid being summoned with Dabram HaKabal If there's a situation of Maimid to Maimid, <coughs> then there's a famous Chazanish, who says even Maimid to Maimid should not be B'dav HaMekabal Tumah. Uh, and Roshata likes to point out that but the Chazanishim, that's only if you hold that Maimid to B'dav HaMekabal Tumah is a problem, then it would be a problem even if it's Maimid to Maimid. But the Chazanishim himself holds that there is no Isra of Maimid to B'dav HaMekabal Tumah even in the first place. So that's a, uh, they quote the Chazanish to be Machim, but the Chazanish himself would probably uh, have been Mako. So if you want to spend a lot of money and go to Bnei Brak and buy yourself a sukkah that doesn't have any nails in it or any screws, but only wooden pegs, uh, ashrecha. Let us now talk about mats, which nowadays, basically almost, when I grew up, everybody had bamboo sticks, now everybody uses mats. So mats are not simple. Although they're better now for the following reason. So the Shulchan, I'm sorry, the Mishnah says explicitly that if you make a mat, for sitting on the shechiva, it is mekabel tumah, and therefore it is possible midaraisa for schach. Um, that's one problem with a potential problem with a mat. A second problem is that there's something called a gzeras tikra. There's a machlokas tanoim, if you're allowed to use uh, planks of a certain width, machlokas of it's three to four tvachim, if it's more than four tvachim, then everyone holds that you're not allowed to use such a plank, even if it's made out of wood, um, because it looks like a, it looks like a ceiling. So the Rashba says that this Isra of Xeras Tikra is not only if it's one fat plank that's four tzvachim wide, or three tzvachim wide, even if it's made out of slats that are tied together, but it's more than four tzvachim wide, it also looks like a roof and also would be problematic. That's exactly what a mat is, isn't it? So therefore, a mat should have this problem of Xeras Tikra. So many postgame are makil in this last issue and say that even though our mats are ultimately wider because there's an amalgamation of many little pieces tied together, but they won't have the problem of Xeris Tikra because the whole problem of Xeris Tikra is that it looks like a roof. A mat allows water to drip through. That's not like a roof. A uh, mat is so flimsy. That's not like a roof. Um, 
Our mats are made out of bamboo. No one in our neighborhoods make roofs out of bamboo. We don't live in, you know, on the Hawaiian Islands where they have thatch roofs. Anyway, so the, 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 there's reason to be make on the concern of Xeris Tikra. Um, in terms of the problem of, of uh, the mats possibly being Kabbal Tumah, if they're made the Shriva, the solution to that is that when our Hamish Oilam manufactures mats in China, they are manufactured specifically for sukkahs, and therefore they won't have the concern that it might have been made for shechiva, which would have rendered them um, a kabel tum, and therefore possibly puzzled the raisa. In terms of the string, string also could be problematic because uh, it's not kaduli karka, and if it's holding the mat together, and you have nylon string, that's not kaduli karka, so therefore they try to use, uh, the idea would be to use hemp, which is a natural string, and it's kaduli karka. Next point. Um, I'm going to present to you three potential problems that a canvas sukkah... Let's talk... I'm sorry, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, let's talk about Tasev Lomen HaAsui. You have to put on the schach on top of pre-existing walls. You can't first put up the schach and then walls. This often happens with canvas sukkahs. You want to put, the, you put up the frame, you put the schach, because you can walk through it, it's much easier, and then afterwards you put the walls up. So that would be... Uh, putting up the walls when you already have a roof, that would be a psal of Tasa Velomen Ha'asui. When you have billowing, when you have uh, fabric walls, there's a concern of a mechitza, She'eno Omedes Baruch Mitsuya is not considered a mechitza. And, you know, billowing walls, fabric walls have that. So there's a question of how much it billows. Um, some say that even if it moves a little bit back and forth, that's puzzle. Uh, the Chazanish is making it. says only if it moves three tfachim away from its axis. I'm not sure if it's three tfachim away from its axis, three tfachim in this direction, three tfachim in this direction, or a total three tfachim. I don't remember. Yeah, I think three tfachim from its axis, three tfachim from its original location, this way or this way. Then the wall is no longer lovered to where the wall is supposed to be, so it will be mavato the shei mechitza, um, so that, then it won't be a mechitza if it, if it billows. Let's say you have a sheet that you tie down really tightly. Still, there's a separate problem that Rabbeinu Peretz raises, not to use sheets because we are, maybe they'll become loosened. Um, but Rabbi Shechter likes to say that if it's a tarp or a canvas a design silk that has grommets at the edge, that those little circles made out of metal, even though it's a, it's, it's, a, it's cloth or fabric, there are these metal grommets, metal grommets on the corners, those circles, that allows it to be tied really tight. Maybe you wouldn't have that problem um, of dinim bizman hazeh. So if you put everything to that we mentioned together, you potentially have three issues when you come to, when you come to a canvas sukkah. They could all be solved, but number one, uh, you're putting the stock down on metal metal poles. That would be mam and b'dabra Okay, so you could elevate it with a with wood underneath it, that's it. Ta'asev lemna asoy, okay, so make sure you put up the walls first, and put the schach on last. Third, you have to make sure that the walls don't billow, but they always billow. So the solution there would be to put up the bands, the three uh, tvachim, or the four, three tvachim uh, bands, meaning within three tvachim of one another, put up uh, one three tvachim on the ground, another less than three tvachim from that, another less than three tvachim from that, so you have a bechitz that would be ten tvachim high, created by uh, a few horizontal strings tied around. But this is really interesting and very Nogelamaisa. You go to uh, Main Street, Cedar Avenue, Central Avenue, get pizza, right? And they have a 
you're from, so you're only going to go, you're not just going to eat in a can of a sukkah on, you know, on the drag, because who knows, they don't know Hilchah sukkah, the guys who put it up. You're going to make sure it has those strings. Oh, Baruch Hashem, it has those strings. You're good, right? How do you know that they didn't put the billowing walls up, put the schach up, and then once it was up, then they put up the strings? What problem will that be? Tasavim and Ha'asli, because the walls didn't count. The walls weren't, weren't kosher. And they said, okay, I have to put up strings, but the strings only work if the strings were before the schach. So what do you do in that situation? You could really, uh, you look funny, especially if it's on, you know, Central Avenue or Main Street or Cedar Avenue. Uh, yeah, you could lift up all the schach again on uh, yourself to solve that problem. Um, okay, let's talk about schach puzzle now. Schach puzzle is different than avir. Avir is puzzle three, with three tvachim. Schach puzzle is puzzle only with four tvachim. However, there's a... There's another kula, just like schach pasul is only possible with four tzvachim, it's also mutter to sit underneath the schach pasul. If, if you have, let's say, two or three tzvachim of schach pasul, you're allowed to sit underneath it. However, avir, um, even if it's less than three tzvachim, if it's three tzvachim, the sukkah is possible. If it's two tzvachim, it's not a pasul sukkah, but you're not permitted to sit under avir. Why is avir more chamer than schach pasul? Because avir is more nikah. Uh, ask the rush. Wait a second. If you not, if avir, uh, you can't sit under avir. Well, every sukkah has a little avir, you know, between the schach. Uh, whether, whether you have bamboo or mats, there's always pockets of avir that you're underneath. So the rush says, no, avir is only going to. You're only not allowed to sit under avir. Or avir is only going to be a posel if it's min hakatzel hakatzel from side to side. If it's a full alpne kulo. So whenever you have schach, you should always make sure that whatever direction your beams are, your schach is going always put a perpendicular beam in the other way. So mats always have that, because mats, if you have boards, if you have uh, pieces of bamboo this way, then you have strings going that way. So there's always going to be a, uh, a perpendicular line. But if you have bamboo shoots, bamboo things going in one direction, make sure there's one going the opposite direction so that you'll never have a avir alpine kula. Okay, let us go to the next shear. Do you want mezizah, or do you want... Dalamina. Zaza. Dalamina. Oh, no. Okay, let's do... Zaza. Okay, let's talk about Sukkah. Fine, fine, fine. It's a good spot. Okay, let's talk about Dalamina. So... How many Dalminim are there? Excellent. You guys are going to do great. So, what's the psal of a of Murkov? So, the simple answer would be, this is what Magen Avram says, because if it's Murkov, it's not an Esrog. That's the easy answer. The Levush says, no, it's Misa Baba since you were, did the Isra of, uh, of Harkava, of Kilayim, that's why it's Asra. So, how do you know if something's Murkov or not? Ooh, that's the million dollar question. Uh, that's why... The yeshiva light all only get chaznish esrogim, and uh, why chaznish esrogim are so much more expensive, even though they're not as pretty. Um, because do you know what the chaznish esrog is? Did Rabbi Kongsvig mention chaznish was walking by a tree somewhere, and it was like in an outskirts of. It wasn't like part of a paradise that someone was growing. It was just on the outskirts somewhere, and he said, "Wow, this is you know this is definitely not a <coughs> not a murkov." Because nobody would, it wasn't part of a business thing that everybody would be mark of it. It was just growing somewhere. So any seed that you get from that tree or the trees that that grew 
is a chazan ishasrik. It's a little bit wild, but I don't know, I get one. Um, so the Chazim Sofer says, even though the, Sh- the, the Gemara tells it, the Shemurah tells us, that, I'm sorry, the Ramah tells us there are four simanim to assure that it's an esor, that it has blitos, bumps, the ukutz is shakua, is indented, the klipa is ava, the seas are vertical as opposed to horizontal, like in a lemon. Uh, so even though we have these simanim, the Chazim Sofer says you shouldn't rely on simanim, shavim esoros, about the pardes, that the pardes indeed uh, has not been marked. Uh, it happens to be the badats, usually the badats is very machmir, if they tell you, if you go Esrik shop and they tell you it has Ashkafa the Badats, then you know that's a gigantic kula. Badats is mekel, like the four simanim, even if it, they don't have a great masora about the pardes, as long as it has those four uh, simanim, they're, they're aligned. So the Badats heksher for uh, Esrogim is the lowest level that you could get. Um, let's talk about some of the psulim for an Esrog. Um, nitla Shoshanta, the, the top, uh, the ball on top of the stem, is kosher according to Moshe Shodim. It's only going to be a problem if the stem below that ball is also off. Um, how much of the stem has to fall off to pasal according to most? This is a machlokas. Some say that it has to fall off so entirely, the taz, so, so much so that there's a hole. Others say even if it's partially fallen off, others say if it, the, if the whole stem fell off, even if there's no hole. Okay, so we are machmir even if the... Uh, Um, even if the ball falls off but the stem is intact you could be mekel uh, and that it would be uh, fine you don't, if, if the ball falls off but the stem is intact you could use that even on the first day however if part of the stem falls off then you should avoid it um, certainly on the first day um, let's say the whole pitum falls off but it's the second but it's the third or fourth day that's fine because the whole psul is a psul of chaser and chaser is only a din, is only a din on the first day. Uh, on the other days, there's no psal of, uh, of chaser. Now, what about, we just mentioned that chaser is only a psal on the first day. What about hadar, the various psalm of hadar? So hadar is a machlokas, whether hadar is psal all, puzzle all zayin, or is puzzle only for the first day. So the Rambam's maker, the Rambam says that just like Chaser is only possible on the first day, so too Hadar, or the Psuli Hadar, also only limited on the first, if, apply on the first day. Tosis, however, is more machmir and says that although Chaser is only on the first day, but the Psuli Hadar apply all seven days. So we are going to be, uh, you know, machmir to avoid issues of Hadar. However, there's a machlokas, whether or not, let's say we say the case of Nitla Pitmaso, um, is that a psal? I mentioned a minute ago that it's a psal of chaser. Some say it's machlokas whether it's a psal of chaser or hadar. So the Mishra says, could I use nitla pitmaso on the third day? The Mishra says, I have a svek sveka. Maybe the whole issue of nitla pitmaso, the pitam falling off with the stem, is only a problem of chaser, therefore it only applies on the first day. And even if you hold it as a problem of hadar, well, guess what? Even by hadar, the Ramam holds that it's puzzle only on the first day and not the other day. So if you're already on day three, four, five, six, seven, you could certainly use a, a, uh, an esrog that its pitam and the stem fell off. Let's now talk about the next point, which is a shinimara discoloration. So chazazis, which is a real discoloration, miuto kasher ruba puzzle. However, that's if there's one uh, discoloration. But if it's two or three places, then it's considered minumar, it's considered like spotted, like, spotted like a leopard, and it's a psal of Hadar. Now, this 
applies to chazazis. What's exactly chazazis? We're not really sure what exactly colors a chazaz is, but the Rush says it applies uh, even to black dots and white dots. Uh, if it has, again, two or three spots, it's puzzle. Uh, and the Rush says that the psal of two or three spots is only if you would connect the dots, it would cover the majority of the area, or the majority of the cir- cir- circumference. That's a cool. So if you have like three dots right next to each other, even though there are three, that would not make it a psal of um, Shinyamara. Where is, where do we have to, where is that, where the, where is the issue? Um, even though we just said that it's three dots on the majority of the esrog, however, chotem, I feel b'mashu pasla. If you have a chazaz on the chotem, that's going to be problematic in and of itself, even if you have one dot there. Uh, where's the chotem? So there's machlokas. The Ramam is the most maker, it says just right below the pitem. Rashi, it says, Rashi is a little bit more machmir. He says, um, well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we pass, we pass, and once the esrog has its upward sloping uh, section, the upper third or half or a quarter, depending on the shape of the esrog, once it slopes upwards, that's the chotem, because that's what you see when you look at it. And on that area, even if it's not a majority, even a ma'ashahu will pass um, if it's a not a mara esrog. Um, green, the Gemara says. Yorick is uh, one second. Yorick is puzzle. Um, it's a machlokas. One second. Uh, there's a question why Yorick is puzzle, either because of Shinimara. Or it's because it's considered not nigmar hapri. So if you know that it will change, then it's kosher. I mean, let's say you took it off the tree, but you know it's the kind of green that's going to turn yellow. It's kosher even before it fully turns yellow. It happens to be that a uh, that chasidim dafka like green because the Gemara says you should use green, but Rav Shefta points out from the Mishkan Siyakov that the Gemara that there's a difference between Yorok and Yorok Kikarti. Yorok means yellow. Yellow is good. When the Zohar says Rishat, it says Aruch Lener, Mishkas Yaakov is Aruch Lener. When the Zohar says that it should be Yorok, that means it should be yellow. The Hasidim who see that it says Yorok, and therefore you should take it, that, 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 that he, he, Rishat holds, that's not what it means. It should be yellow and not green. So it happens to be that this is pretty much the only thing that Rishat is mocked on when it comes to a Srogum. He's the most makel People who've gone Esrog shopping through Shafta have been very, very, very frustrated because they thought they were going to learn something about Esrog, and Rishatta goes and says, wow, these are really nice, and he'll scoop up like six of them and walk out. Um, people think they're going to learn like this, like this. Um, the one thing that he is put on is, the other, is that which, by the Hasidim, is a lechatchila. If there's any green on it, so Shafta doesn't like green on it. And by the Hasidim, green is a, a mila. So um, if you're going to get Shemush and Esrogim, Look, probably could I to look elsewhere. Uh, if you want to know how the briskers do it, don't uh, argue she does not. Where doesn't have the Mesorah as much in this area as in this but every other area. Yeah? There's a certain uh, size of the, the black dots. I mean, a lot of times you have like... Yeah, it has to be near the iron. So if it's near the iron, it's a problem. It's not near the Yeah, yeah, like this. Yeah. If it's not near the iron, then it's not a problem.
Okay, when it comes next point, when we talk about the lulav and the yavnechlika hatiyomes, what's a tiyomes? You have a very important machlokis here. The Sfaradim and the Rif and the Ram and the Shofar say yavnechlika tiyomes is only the majority of the of the tiyumsin of the leaves are split. Rama and the Ashkenaz are machmir that all we care about is the middle leaf, uh, not the rest of them. In which case, it's very easy to have a problem, meaning it's a much bigger chumra that you have. Even nafkatiyomas, uh, even on one middle leaf, would itself be already be problematic. Uh, how much is split to be problematic? So Rav Rishonim say the majority, the rove of the leaf from the shadra, the top of the shadra till the top, rove of that has to be apart. That's what's possible. But the Ran cites the Yesh Omrim that even if it's nechlika b'miuto, there's a question, a further question: What does miuto mean? Does miuto mean even if it's less than rove, or miuto means even a mashahu? So. The, again, the, uh, the uh, medakta can try to avoid there even being a mute of uh, separation on the top, but, but uh, you don't necessarily have to be machmer for that. However, if it's not just nechlika, but it's, it's like a hemnik, hemnik is like a, a V. It's that, again, nechlika, look at my fingers, please. Nechlika, just means the fingers are not completely there's a tiny bit of space. You can't see it because you're too far away. A tiny bit of airspace. But if it's like this, then it's like a, like a antennae of a, of, a, of, a, of a bug that are in, pointing away from each other, like a V, that's a hemnik, and that would be a problem even if it's a masha. That is what you have to be aware of uh, and concerned with. Um... Um, that we're worried, even if it's a mute of the upper part of the leaf from the shedra to the top, let's say it's three inches. So if it would be only 1.3 inches separated, that's a mute, that you should, that, uh, that's okay. That that's, should be avoided. But if it's a mashu, it's okay. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. The other thing says, no, even a mashu should be avoided. Even a mashu split should be avoided. The, the, the machlok is really, is do you have to be concerned about a mashu, or you don't have to be concerned about a mashu of the top tiyomis being split? Meshulash, um, by Hadassim. So Rashi has a gigantic chumrah that says that the, the three uh, leaves have to come out from the exact same point on the stem, and uh, the other Rishonim say, no, as long as there's smuchim and dvukim, and the Chazanish explains that as long as if you would draw a line around the circumference of the thing, and it would, and all three, uh, and the leaves would cross all three, uh, or the base of the leaves would cross that, the base of all three leaves, or the leaves will cross that line all together. That's already considered mishulish. Um, good. good. Okay, let's go to the next year. Okay, should we do... Mezuzah? Or... Let's do Mezuzah. Okay, we'll hopefully get one, maybe one more. Okay, let's chazer hilchas mezuzah. So mezuzah has to be four by four. A uh, room has to be four by four to be defined as a bias. What about, does four by four mean 16 square amos, or does it mean mamish four by mamish four? What happens if you have eight by two, or 16 by one? 
eight by two is more reasonable. Basically, that means a hallway. A hallway could be long and narrow. Uh, it has 16 square amas, but it's not four by four. So Ramam says it's chayev. Uh, it is chayev. The Rash says, no, it has to be a minimum of four by four. So what would we do? We would be machmir and put up a mezuzah without a bracha. Um, however, others, uh, some, some, are, some say that, no, even the Rambam doesn't really mean it. Rambam means something else, which we're not going to get into. And uh, the Taz is makel and says, no, if it's a narrow hallway, less than four amas wide, less than seven feet wide, you don't need a mezuzah. Um, but the minute, I guess, would be that if there's a proper doorway, most people would put up on a mezuzah. Now, in terms of the use of the room, let's say it's less than four by four, but it is used for whatever its usage is. So, for example, a guard booth. A guard booth is less than four amas by four amas. Um, but it, ha- it is ro'i l'milsei. So, Chamundi Daniel suggests that if it's ro'i l'milsei, it's functional for whatever its purpose is, then even less than four by four would be chayav. Uh, so, for example, in my house, when I have an, they, if you walk into my front door of that, the front door of my house, I have a little tiny anteroom where there's you know, a closet to put your coats in on the side, and then you walk through another door, uh, into the main area of my house. That front room, which is the front door of my house, is less than four by four. So theoretically, I shouldn't have to put uh, a... Uh, the Chamuni Daniel would probably say uh, that it still serves its function as the entrance way, and therefore, you should put up a, and therefore we would put up a mezuzah without a bracha. So fun, as funny as it sounds, the front door of my house would not get a mezuzah. Depending on how your house is, uh, the Washington Heights uh, apartments, the one that I lived in in Washington Heights, when you walk in, there's a small area of closet on your right and your left, and then it opens up to the bigger dining room. So that would be a similar situation, because the front door of the apartment to that little, the first few feet with the apartment, you know, remember the closet is, is taking up the space on the right and the left, and not only then do you open up into a wider spot, so that front door wouldn't, we wouldn't make a bracha on that front door because it doesn't open up to a room that is dollar by dollar. Um, we might put a mezuzah there anyway, for this chamadi Daniel, but without a bracha. Um, so if you have a closet, so if you have a closet, if it's not a walk-in closet, there's no mezuzah. If it is a walk-in closet and it is four by four, then it's a room. If it is a closet, but it's not four by four amos, which is most, you know, any normal walk-in closet, so then the uh, Rebbe Kveger understands, Achronim discuss how to understand Rebbe Kveger. Rebbe Kveger suggests that you don't need a, a, a mezuzah going into this closet, but when you go from the closet into the room, meaning from your shoes and suits into your room, back, coming the other way, then you're going from a closet into a room that is big, your, down, your bedroom is four by four. So then you would need a closet, uh, a mezuzah going from the closet into the room. So Rabbi Simon very much doesn't like that, he says, because that's not called derech biyasri, you're always supposed to have a, a mezuzah going inside, into the room on the right side. If that's coming out, that's derech yitziyasri, not derech biyasri, Rabbi Simon doesn't like that, uh, you know, putting up a mezuzah going from the closet into the room. Similarly, if you had a porch, if you had a porch, that would be less than four by four. But if you're coming from the porch into the living room, into the kitchen, let's say you have an apartment building. You're on the 16th floor, but there's a porch outside. A porch isn't big enough to, uh, to have dollar by dollar, but the porch comes into the living room. So 
Should you put a mezuzah on the right side from the porch into the living room, which means on the left side going out to the porch? So uh, Rabbi Simon would vehemently say, definitely not, but Rabbi Kriega, someone in Rabbi Kriega that says that you should do that. Okay, next point. Um, we would never put a mezuzah on two sides of the door. Rabbi Simon calls that weird. Um, to place two mezuzahs on one door post, that would be Baltosef. Um, in terms of apartment buildings, um, I don't remember if I signed spot about that this year. That would Mikra uh, Hadin. There's a Shutvas Akum, so Mikra Hadin should be potter because of the Shutvas Akum, it would not be chayev to have a mezuzah. Uh, you have to know. Most importantly, the Rambam says that if there's no delis, then you don't need. To, you know, it doesn't need a mezuzah at all. So we are machmer like all the other Rishon that even without a delis, we'll put up a mezuzah. But to be machmer for the Shittas Rambam, whenever there's no delis, we will not say a bracha. So all of you who live in Washington Heights apartments and there are archways or doorways without doors, which happens, all the kitchen, door, usually kitchens don't have doors uh, most of the time, and anywhere, anywhere you live. Um, entrances to living rooms and dining rooms usually don't have doors. So all those entranceways will need a mezuzah, but we will not make a bracha on it to be machmer for the shita to ramp up. Okay, yeah? No, I just did that. Baruch Shein Pen. Quick. Okay, Okay. so now, how high do you have to put up a mezuzah? So, you have to put a mezuzah, if you put it on the, it's important to know where you should put the mezuzah, because if you put it on the wrong side, or too low, or too high, you're not Yotzi even the Yevit. So how high are you supposed to do it? Uh, you're supposed to do it on the bottom of the Shlishel. If you do it to the top tefa, you're not Yotzi at all. If you do it before, below the bottom of the Shlishel, yeah, this looks reasonable. Yeah. If you would put it over here, below the Shlish Elyon, it would be puzzle. If you put it on the wrong size, it would be puzzle. Where does this come up? This comes up in uh, preschools, elementary schools, and children's bedrooms, where they want the children to be able to kiss the mezuzah, because it's such a big mitzvah to kiss the mezuzah. So they are not yoked to the mitzvah of mezuzah, because they want whatever. So even if it would be a children's room, you'd still have to put it at the bottom of the Shlish Elyon, like any other room. Um, what happens if you have a very, very tall door? Uh, this, if you go to Shariafo, you'll see it's a very, right, it's 20 feet high, and yet the mezuzah is taka at shoulder height. That's like the Yushalmi. The Yushalmi says it should be placed at shoulder height, even if that will be below the top third. So the Chazunish wants to say that it doesn't, the Yushalmi is not telling us to finish that if it's a very tall door, you put it at shoulder height. The Yushalmi is just telling you that when the Gumbavli says Shlish Elyon, it means shoulder height. So, um, you should put it shoulder height. Fine. In terms of leaving mezuzahs behind, you, if a Jewish person is going to move in after you, you're not allowed to take away his shmir, so you should leave the mezuzah behind. Um, and however, the Ramah says that you're allowed to charge him. For if you know that somebody's moving into your apartment, you have a YU apartment. So while you guys going to move in after you move out, you have to leave the mezuzahs, but you could charge him. Uh, what happens if he doesn't want to pay? You have to leave it for him anyway. So, because you guys know this halacha, you could, uh, I'm going to charge you, you have to pay me. But if you are the guy moving in, he says, go ahead, you can charge whatever you want, I'm not paying you. And, uh, and he can't take it off. Um, if they do painting, if you know they're going to be doing painting, they're going to be removing the mezuzahs anyway, so then you could take them off uh, yourself and take them home with you. 
even though you know a Jew is moving in. Or thirdly, let's say you don't know who's going to be moving in, you don't know if it'll be a Jew or a Jew guy, then you could also take them as with it. Yes? I would encourage you to measure this Shlishelian. Yes, I think you should measure it. Uh, you can divide by three? You know how to do that. Yes, you'll be fine. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Why you smich at its best? What about the case? What? No, the case is meaningless. Take the case with you. Unless it's ugly, then leave it for that. Um... Okay, what about storage rooms? So storage rooms, believe it or not, do require uh, Maker Hadin. The Gemara says explicitly, and the Shulchan Aras says explicitly, storage, based HaOtzar, is Chayav, in a storage room. However, the Poskim say that that's only if it's a storage room that's part of your dira. So it's like if you have a, a, a storage room in your house, you have a storage room in your basement, a storage room off the kitchen, or some people call the Costco closet, a storage, your, your, uh, your garage, uh, that's attached to your house. If it's a disattached garage, um, then the person say you should. I'm not clear. I think you should put up, but don't make a bracha because I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, what about a shul? A shul maker din is potter. Uh, base the medrash is not like a shul. Base medrash is two days in the shulchan aruch, and the uh, base medrash is sort of more like a dira because we all fall asleep in the base medrash, right? Um, <laughs> there's a guy when I give shiurim. There's one guy who will remain nameless because I'm recording this, who's a little heavy, heavier than he should be, and he has a propensity to sleep when I speak, which is fine. I have nothing wrong with people sleeping while I give shiurim. What's the problem? He snores excessively loudly. And it's very disturbing because the whole, you know, everybody in shul hears his snoring, and I hear his snoring, and we're all just like the elephant in the room, but I just have to move on. So it's, it's a, whatever. There's nothing wrong with you about a bathroom for a sleep on your side. It doesn't mean you don't give a good cure. It doesn't mean you don't give good speeches. People are tired. Don't worry about it. But if they snore, you have to figure out what to do. Um, an office building, Mikra din chanus is potter. What's a chanus, though? It could be a chanus is only like one of those, uh, you know, a makeshift thing in the market, but in a real office building, maybe that's more, a little bit more. You're in the office. It depends. If you're a first-year lawyer and you're in the office for 20 hours a day, so maybe it's more like a base dira. If you're, uh, you know, you have a better job that you only have to be there, you know, a minority of the day, um, or if you have a great job that you work remote and you never have to be there, then you definitely don't have to have a mezuzah there. So that's why you should all try to work remotely so you don't have to invest in a mezuzah <laughs> in your office. Uh, but making that in an office doesn't really need a mezuzah. Yeah. Her downstairs, the mezuzah was I don't know if there's anything in it, but the hack is that the when they when they uh, honored whoever it was to put up the mezuzah on the on the door downstairs to base medrash. There's, no, there's a different issue. Downstairs to base medrash. First of all, you're right. We would make, we would not make a brach on a, mezuzah, on, a, on a on a door. But the issue downstairs, if you go downstairs, you'll notice that when you right near the bathroom, the entrance to the clock base medrash for the bathroom, you notice that there's no tzuras hapesach there. It's a wall. It's a glass door that turns. But there's no tzuras hapesach around on the, on, on the wall. So it's sort of meaningless. It's like putting up Mizzou line here. Um, and they honored a respectable person to do that. Or the, a respectable person paid to do that. So that was, that was the hack. Um, yeah. Did Rabbi, Shechter, did, did, did Rabbi uh, Simon talk about Asla Shamesh in front of a mezuzah? Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, if anybody wants to go, you could go. I'm going to try to get one more here. So if you have to dive in Mincha 2.30, you're welcome to walk. If you work in an office for someone else, as assuming you're not 
You're not the Bailim. Uh, you're using it, but you're not considered even a renter. You're saying you're even less than a renter. Okay, so your starting average salary is, do you know? No, it's not too far. It's only two, two or five, I think, now. What's about that? But it's okay. Um, so we used to do 180, and then with the inflation, I think it went up to... It went up to 180, it went from 180 to like 205 or 225. I think now it's like 215. 215, 215, right. They're all the same, they're all the same. I don't remember, I don't remember. Okay. So for the last shear, should we do... Should we do... Uh, I think it's to that do the ovens on Yantif, because that's, that's a little bit uh, more or less, less organized. Thank you. Uh, have a great day. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about Yomtif. Okay, so the last thing we'll do today, we'll talk about the locks of cooking on Yomtif, the locks of Yomtif. <laughs> Number one, let's talk about gas stoves. Number one, igniting a fire on Shabbos is also Daraisa. Igniting a fire on Yomtif is only Asr Midrabanan called Molid Eish. That's Asr Midrabanan on Yomtif. However, um, it is permitted, of course, to extend a pre-existing fire. Now, why is it asumidabana to light a fire? Uh, the Rama says because you could have uh, you could have done an estimal, you could have made something, uh, you could have had a call from yesterday. Others say that it's like being molded. Fine. Now, if you have a pilot light, most of us don't have pilot lights anymore, but those are great pilot lights that were always on. Allow you to always be mamshuk the flame that wouldn't be molded, so it would be mutter to turn on an oven if you had a pilot light. Nowadays, uh, many states have outlawed pilot lights, and you have to have an electronic ignition, which means when you turn that click, 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 clicker uh, as you're turning on the oven, there is a flame ignited, and that, of course, would be an iser rabbanon on Shabbos. Even if you don't have a uh, an igniter that has the click, 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 you still have. Uh, you have a glowing thing, so turning on the uh, the metal to be heated up would also be molded, or because of the circuit, that would all be another problem. Um, let's talk about Shabbos mode ovens, and this is going to be definitely no gag, because you'll get Shabbos about this either when your balabatim are, are uh, getting new ovens, or when you give a shear about this and they say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I thought you could do whatever you want uh, with a Shabbos mode oven. So number one, a Shabbos mode oven has a few very important things. There's no 12-hour cutoff that regular modes typically have. So this way you could have uh, over a three-day, two, two three-day oven if you could have, have food. Number two, uh, it takes away any digital readouts. Um, it take, turns off the light, turns off the automatic fan. If you open the doors, so that's also good. You don't have a light to worry about. Uh, the other point that Shabbos mode does, which... Uh, Rav Heinemann engineered many posts can disagree with. And that is, Rav Heinemann suggests that created a situation that when you press buttons, you set it on Shabbos mode, and you press a button on Yontif, it doesn't cause any change in the readout, and it causes a situation of a grama that you cause something for the system to notice and realize at some point, three seconds later, to do whatever you instructed it to do. So if Heinemann felt that that would be considered grama, and therefore, look at my fingers, it's an is grama on an isadurabanan, the tzorach mitzvah of ochel nefe, of, of yontif food, 
that would be matter. Grama and that refinement fell would be matter. However, many Pokemon have rejected this and said that that's not considered grama. Grama is when I do something and there's a kalach acham that comes from the outside um, that joins my activity that makes it grama. But if I work with a system that has been programmed specifically that when I do this, this will happen just because you say, oh yeah, but it's going to set up in a grammatic way, that's not called grama. So most poskim have rejected that last aspect of Shabbos mode ovens, and therefore um, we would not allow adjusting the temperature on Yontif with the touchpad, um, even though the start case says you can. What he did is he made and he engineered the circuits so that when you press the button, it doesn't just do what you ask. It sets the, it, you press the button and that makes the oven in a certain matzav, so that when there's a cycle that goes around every, I don't know, five seconds, it will notice when it goes around and hits this point, it realizes that something is different now. And it will then react. I say, what are you, is it touching the oven or nothing? Good. You don't like it. That's fine. Leave no, it I don't there. understand. Yeah, Rav says you could actually change the temperature of your, on your digital oven on Shav, on Yantif, not Shavas, on Yantif. But if it's on Shabbos mode, are you presetting it before Shabbos? No, Shabbos mode means that you've turned off, you've set up a system, and according to Heinemann, you're allowed to actually change the temperature on Yantif. And good, it's good you don't. No, so yeah, that's what Heinemann says you could. Okay. Yeah, so Heinemann says you could. Um, in terms of opening the door in general, so on Yantif, on Shabbos, if you open the door of, a, uh, of an oven, there's a lot of hack about this, but I'll tell you what Nurberger holds. Um, then, if you open the door, the it's going to cool off, and it could cause the flame to go on. So that would be a, potentially a psik ratio. However, if you do that on Yantif, uh, let's say again, you have a flame on, 300 on Yantif, 250, 300, and you open the door. So this is a psik ratio on a Durabanan, Lutzarach Yantif, and that will be okay, even if you cause the flame to go on because of the cold air that's rushing in. Um, are you allowed to ask a guy to turn on the, the oven? This oftentimes will happen if somebody just forgot to set the oven before Yontif, or you're going out for the first two meals, and you're only going to need you know, your oven on the second day of Yontif. You don't want to leave your thing on the whole Yontif. Or it's Shavuos, and it's 85 degrees in the house, and you don't want to leave your oven uh, when it's 85 degrees anyway. Uh, because it's going to make your kitchen boiling hot. So let's apply, again, the fact that igniting a fire is only a drabana, we have a shvus to shvus malkamitzah. Shvus, igniting a fire is only a drabana. Tamil and achri is only a drabana. If it's for malkamitzah, you have a shvus to shvus for malkamitzah, and it will be permitted to ask a guy to turn on the oven if it's considered malkamitzah. What's considered malkamitzah? You don't want to pay an electricity bill, or you don't want to pay a bigger gas bill? That's not a Malka Mitzvah. Malka Mitzvah is someone's taka scared. Some people, especially people who didn't grow up from it, didn't grow up with, uh, or people always went away for Pesach and Sukkot, they weren't, you didn't grow up in a house that leaves the oven on for three days straight, you know, regularly, and think that that's totally safe. You would ask a guy in the street. I'm not comparing anyone who went away from Pesach to a guy. I'm just saying. If you would ask a guy in the street, is it safe to leave an oven on 250 or 300 degrees for three days straight? They'll say you, you're like, like you should be you should be committed. I mean, you're, you're you're insane. You should be arrested for child abuse or something like that. Um, unless you grew up like that, in which case, like you know, I think I did, and I assume uh, many other from people grew up like that. And that's normal. 
So if somebody is not familiar with that and they are freaking out, how could I leave my oven on for three days? Or uh, how could I... Or it's going to be very hot like in Shavuos. Then it would be a Makkah Mitzvah. If you just want to save a few bucks, um, that would not be considered a Makkah Mitzvah. And you would not have the head. So really, when people ask me, can I have the guy turn the oven on? I ask them, why? And if they say, why should it burn? Why should I have to leave it on for three days? They say, no, you can't ask a guy. If they say, because I forgot, I always set my oven on this week, I forgot. So, I say, oh, you're not going to have hot food. So, uh, it's not a makamitzah. So, it is a makamitzah. Also, what happens if they have a cholent in the crock pot and they want to heat up the, the kugels? I don't know if that's a makamitzah. If you already have hot food for your meal, for your Shabbos Yantav meal, so to have hot kugels also, that's going to be a makamitzah? I'm not convinced. Because you already have a hot food, you have hot chance. I don't know if that would reach the threshold of Malkamitsa to allow the hecker of Shwist to Shwist Malkamitsa. Okay, next point. What about lowering a fire on Shabbos? On Yantif, I mean. So there's a, an unusual Rav Moshe Feinstein, which unless you're in the Lower East Side, I'm not going to discuss. But typically we assume that it's also to lower the fire unless the only way you have to let this thing, if you have a soup that has to stay warm, if you take it off, the fire will get cold. If you leave it on the fire, the fire is too high, it's going to burn. So the only way you could have your soup normal without burning and still be warm is by lowering the flame. Then it's L'Tzorech Ochel Nefesh. Usually, lowering the flame is not L'Tzorech Ochel Nefesh. Usually, lowering the flame because you want to save gas. Or, if something's hot and you, and you want to lower the flame because it doesn't have to be so hot, so just take it off for five minutes and it won't be so hot. So very rarely do you have a case of lowering the flame that is L'Tzorech Ochel Nefesh. But if you find such a case, again, like a soup, that if you leave it on the high flame, it will burn. But if you take it off the flame, it will cool off to my, it won't be able to serve it because it's cold, so then it would be lowering the flame, which is in the unusual situation where that is indeed, but that's a rare scenario. Let's move on to the next point in this year, which is Yontif uh, Sheni. So, Yontif Sheni Shogolios, what happens if you, why do you have to, why do uh, Americans have to keep two days? Because that's been the minute of Klaiso for the past, I don't know, 500 years or more. It's been the halach for the past 500 years and more. Um, the only one who is makel in this is the Chacham Suyis. Chacham Suyis is an interesting uh, chiddush, which nobody has accepted until uh, very recently. And that is that the Chacham Suyis has a svara that when it comes to the halach, let's back up. The shaila of keeping two days of Yantif, if you're an American and going to Israel, do you have to keep the second day? We keep the second day. We in America keep the second day because you heard the word minhag, that means it's a minhag. What's the halach when you have a minhag and you need to go to a place where there's a different minhag? So Shulchan Aruch says explicitly, you follow the minhag makam sheh yatamisham. So if you're a New Yorker, you have minhag of keeping two days and it's called a minhag, right? Minhag When you go to Eretz Israel, so your minhag as a New Yorker was to keep two days. So your minhag, you should follow in Eretz Israel the minhag makam sheh yatamisham. Says the Chacham Tzvi the following. He suggests that uh, the concept of being doing the minhag of Makam Shiyot Misham only applies it's a minhag that doesn't bring along kulas. But if it's a minhag that brings along a kula, for example, not putting on tefillin, or the kula of uh, um, Baltosef, or Brach of you're going to write, you're going to, you're going to say bracha on Achilles Matz on the second night of Pesach, that's, that's, that could be bracha batala. So Chacham Tzvi says, we won't apply the din of minag, makam shiatam misham, we'll only apply the din of minag, makam shiatam misham, by a chumrah. Now we're going to lead to a kula. That's the svara of the Chacham Tzvi. And uh, all the posts can basically disagreed with that svara. And said, no, minag, makam shiatam misham applies, bein lahachmir, 
Um, in general, you'll find that the Eretz Yisrael postgame are much more lenient than the American postgame. The Minaginar Yeshiva is uh, of almost all the rest of Yeshiva, as far as I know, is to keep two days. Almost always, there are some unusual exceptions. I have even you know even Rishetta once told me it's an unusual case, but uh, you'll you'll uh, deal with that when it comes up. Next, uh, the last point, last point in this year will be, and for today's year will be, what about showering? So we know that shower, that you're allowed to do malachas ochol nefesh if it's shove lachol nefesh. The Gemara talks about are you allowed to hunt deer? Not everybody likes deer, deer meat. Um, so maybe it's not shalachol nefesh. The Gemara says no, food is food. So you know, this food or that food, some people do like, don't like. But in order to be matir ochol um, nefesh, it has to be shove lachol nefesh. So. The Gemara says everyone knows everyone's clean hands, clean clean feet, clean face. You're allowed to warm up heat, warm up water for uh, for clean hands, clean feet. That's considered shavlechol nefesh. The question that we have is: Is showering considered something that's shavlechol nefesh? Meaning, we all shower. We all believe that it's a cool thing to shower. We like showering, but it doesn't mean that every single person in this room likes to shower every single day. So, is going one day without a shower is that shavlechol nefesh? That might not be so simple. Uh, so, in other words, you have two shilas, really, uh, whenever it comes to showering. One is when you turn on the water, so cold, hot water is coming from your boiling boiler, and the boiler now has less hot water in it, so it has to refill. So cold water is getting coming into the boiler and getting cooked. So you did a psikresha of boiling up water, the cold water that came into your boiler when you extracted the water for your shower. So you did boiling, and it might not be for nefesh, that's problem number one. And even if you had hot water available in a, in a tub, you filled up a, hot, a tub with hot water on Friday afternoon, it still would be problematic because there's something called Gzeres Habalanim. Gzeres Habalanim was, of course, Takana the Chacham said that we were worried about dishonest uh, Merchat's attendants who said, oh, I heated it up before Shabbos, but really they know that their clients like hot, hot, hot showers and they would throw in some wood on uh, Friday night or Shabbos morning to keep the to keep the mikvah high. So because of those uh, dishonest uh, merchatz attendants, Chacham said you're not allowed to take a bath in warm water at all, even if the water was warm any other time. So the question is, could we put a few tzirufim together and maybe b'shas hadchak for somebody who's mitztayer on a three-day yantif, so Rabbi Newberg is willing to give the following hetim. We could be mitzari five different kulas to allow you to shower in a certain way. Uh, number one, if you do it on Yantav Shani. So the, even the Shaila of Bishel is only at most a, a Dirabanan. And if you're bitzar, maybe that makes you consider that it's Shavel Chol Nefesh, because you're bitzar. Everyone who would be bitzar would need to shower. And. Um, maybe the Xeris Habalanim is only in a tub, but not in a shower. But if you shower, then it's not a tub. Maybe that's not subject to the Xeris Habalanim. And maybe Xeris Habalanim is only for the water is hot, and you use only warm water. Uh, and finally, there's a Shailif. Xeris Habalanim applies only on Shabbos or even to Yantif. So if you're going to, on the second day of Yantif, for someone who's Mamash Pitsar, and you use a shower and use water that's not hot but warm, so Rabbi Newberg would be willing to give a kula for such a shower. Because then it's more bizarre. Because if it's anyway, we're only allowing it on the on a two day. So it's a two day. Just wait another hour, another two hours, and the second day will be over. Like he said only on a three day on 
I believe it's only on Yantif. If it's the Yantif Shani, I, I don't remember. It's only on a 3D Yantif. Yeah. It depends on the heating system of your apartment. So unless you have a schematic diagram and work that out with, with, a, with a plumber who knows your apartment building and, and, a, and a local Orthodox rabbi, I wouldn't be willing to be Mako. And the shadow comes up, so it really depends on different plumbing systems. Yeah. Cold shower doesn't have the issue of uh, of a bishul. That means no, no. That means no hot water at all. Because once you use a little bit of hot water, even to take the chill out, like with make like in the nine days and the velum doing shlosha, no. Um, so like like make it lukewarm. Once you put any warm water at all, then it's going to automatically be allowing more hot water to be cooking. So you didn't solve the problem. If it's totally cold, first of all, you're going to be freezing. And most people won't want to do it. If it's, a, if it's uh, you know, if it's Yontif, uh, like Yom, like, not Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Shavuos, um, and it's really hot, and you don't mind a freezing cold shower, um, then do you not have Gzeres Habalonim? You don't have any Bishel problem. Um... Then I don't. You might not have Zeres Habalon. It could be only for warm water. I don't know if the Isser was not to bathe. No, I think it might be an Isser to bathe. I, I don't remember. I don't remember the question. Okay, I both say we did a bunch of them. We did one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so we did a little bit more than half. I tried to cover ones that are a little harder. The other ones were a little bit easier. Bez Hashem, I am happy to do a Zoom to do the other, the remaining uh, Shiurim. Uh, do you want Monday same time or twelve o'clock is better? Monday at twelve. Who could make it Monday at twelve on Zoom? What? Oh, so let's not do that. So, yeah. Tuesday at Tuesday lunch. Tuesday at twelve. How many of you are in Rabbi Leibowitz's? Uh, all of you. So how about Tuesday at twelve? Who cannot make Tuesday at twelve? Is he gonna be recorded? It'll be recorded. Who can make Tuesday at twelve? Okay. Okay. No, no. I'm gonna. I'm not coming in. Yeah. Uh, Tuesday will be on Zoom. So I'll be in. I'll send you the Zoom link uh, by Monday night or Tuesday morning. So Tuesday at twelve.